Hi, this is Jam D. Mateus, and you're listening to the Captain America Comic Book Fans Podcast. Welcome, Cap fans, to episode 13 of the Captain America Comic Book Fans Podcast. I am your host, Rick Verbonis, and I am joined by my partner, as always, Bob Lucius. Bob, how are you? I'm doing great, Rick. It's great to be here once again. So I'm really excited today, as my first uh, Cap comic was back in 1983 with Captain America 286, and that issue launched a lifelong love for the character of Steve Rogers, and I'm so pleased to introduce the writer behind that story, J.M. DeMatteis. J.M., welcome to the show. Happy to be here. And remind me which story that was. <laughs> oh, 286? Yes. That was the beginning of The Deathlock Lives. Oh, oh, okay. Okay. That was, that was um, you know, Zach and I had been doing that book, I guess, for a couple of years by that point. And I felt like we were really, really hit our peak with, with, with that Deathlock three-parter. And then he got whisked away to do Secret Wars and he, he abandoned me. Yes. Much like the heroes got whisked away. That's right. That's uh, right. And, and so you're a prolific writer on many levels, but uh, to many of us, you're best known for your, your comic book writing over the last 40 years. Um, and you've, you've been a, a long time Spider-Man writer. Your, your, your Craven's last hunt story, of course, is iconic. Um, your, your run on justice league was, was so much fun and really set a whole new standard for comics and sparked several follow-ups that were equally fun. And I, I could go on and on, but for, our listeners, your your run on Captain America from 1981 to 1984 was was really something special. You know, I'm 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 really I'm very grateful about that because you know when that book was coming out, I don't remember getting any particularly. Not that I got negative feedback. I felt like the the response out in the world at that point was just kind of neutral. It did, I, and over the years, uh, going to conventions, more and more people have come up to me, and Captain America has become a much bigger part of the conversation over the years. So uh, it, it's, and, and I feel like in some ways I talk about it much more now than I did then when I was actually creating the stories. So it's interesting, and I'm I'm very gr grateful. It's just what you hope for that you know your work stays out there, and people continue to appreciate it, and and actually appreciate it more over time. That's pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. And for me personally, you, you know, your time on the series was when I first became a Cap fan, and I I refer to your run with 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 Mike Zach and John Beatty and Bob Sharon as the dream team. So so this opportunity to speak with you about these stories is is a big thrill. And it's funny, I I know you're a rock and roll fan and appreciate yes. the Beatles. And uh, I also know you have a great sense of humor. So I don't know if you recall this, but back in 1993, there was a skit on Saturday Night Live where Chris Farley uh, had his own interview show. And uh, he actually had Paul McCartney on as a guest. I, I remember it. I do. And, and he started off the interview with, remember when you were at the Beatles? Right, right. And he kept smacking himself in the head. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and he goes, yeah. he goes, uh, that was that was awesome. <laughs> but I, I promise, Bob, I would not have that sort of moment with you today. <laughs> That's very funny. <laughs> That's very funny. All right. So, so you grew up as a comic book fan. In fact, yep. um, you wrote a letter uh, back in high school and had it printed in Captain America 121. And then oddly enough, 10 years later, here you're writing Cap. 
So that um, was wait. Uh, so, you know, I, I had a bunch of letters printed from like junior high school into high school, and probably even a little bit beyond that. So was that the? Ca- I, I think I came across this one recently. Was this the one where I was raving about the Falcon? I was like fourteen yes. and just going on and on about the Falcon. And you know, I read that. I saw that letter recently. Someone maybe put it online, and I was like. I don't remember being that crazy about the Falcon, but clearly I must have been, you know? I I mean, I like the character. I obviously like the character, but it seems like at age 14, I loved the character so much that I, that I wrote that effusive, effusive letter. It's it's very funny whenever I come across these letters, you know, sometimes, uh, sometimes they're, they're a little embarrassing, but they're, but they're always kind of sweet, you know, because you can't hide that love and enthusiasm, you know, that, that, we as true fans have for these characters in these worlds, you know? Yeah. And, and so how surreal is it that, you know, you, you are writing in and then 10, 10 years later, you're writing cap uh, your, your first story is a, is a three-parter that runs in 261 uh, through 264. And it starts off with a bang. It's a, it's a battle with the red skull. So can you tell the listeners how, how you got that assignment? Yeah. I kind of stumbled into uh, writing the book uh, backwards because, um, you know, I, I, I had broken in at DC and around the same time, uh, Jim Shooter had read some of my samples and he took an interest in my work. So he would throw me little jobs here and there, fill-ins, whatever. And at one point he came to me and said, it's just, remember, there were the Captain America uh, TV movies of the 70s. I guess this was, so this must be like 79 or 80s. I forget what year it was, somewhere Se- around Yeah, there. 79. Probably 79. It probably was not 80 or till 80 or 81 when the book actually came out. And, and they were going to do, they wanted to do a Marvel Treasury edition Captain America story that would tie in to the second Captain America TV movie. So, okay. You know, you're a freelancer, especially when you're a freelancer at the beginning of your career. It doesn't matter what they come to you and ask you. The answer is always yes. You know, <laughs> if they would have said, you know, we want to do a 500 page Millie the Model story, I would have been, yes, let's do that. You know, um, so I, I wrote this uh this treasury edition, which was, it must've been like a 60 page story or something crazy like that. And then somewhere along the line, someone decided, no, we're not doing that. We're not going to tie into this movie. And it was kind of forgotten. And then this must've been at a certain point, a shooter offered me a contract at Marvel. So I went from DC over to Marvel and, uh, and Jim Salakrup, who was editing Captain America at the time said, well, remember that you did the work on that treasury edition. Can we like, take the TV movie references out and just convert it into a a regular Captain America story. But that's why he's going to Hollywood and all that stuff in that story, because those are the elements uh, that came from the original story. So that's what I did. I turned it into a three-parter. It's the first time I ever worked with Zek. And I think they had probably, if I'm remembering, like 27 different anchors on that story. Um, And and, and that was the beginning, but that, that wasn't me like getting the book. That was just me doing three fill-ins in a row based on this treasury edition and somehow uh, as a result of that I think a few issues later uh, Salakup offered me the book and and we moved on from there. Yeah so as it was a fill-in so you're offered the ongoing role as a series writer how does that work like was it open-ended because you went on to write you know 30 plus issues over the next three years. Yeah um, you know basically and in those days especially you know it seems like people don't stay on books as long these days 
And uh, whereas it was, it was kind of standard to stick around in a book two, three, four years, sometimes more. You know, I was at the same time I was doing the Defenders. On the, I was on the Defenders for three and a half years. You could really, with an ongoing book, as long as you still got along with your editor and he liked what you were doing or she liked what you were doing, um, you'd stay as long as you wanted to stay. Uh, so um, the great thing about an ongoing series is you can build. Mm -hmm. You can build things. It's, 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 you know, even though you're telling individual stories along the way, you're, you're, you're really kind of creating an expansive novel. Because if you're working on a book for two or three years, all the things that you're doing, everything's building on what came before. And there are plot threads and character threads and all these things that kind of come together. So it really gives you the long view. And when you, you know, when you get on a monthly book like that, you have to think that way. You can't think like I'm going to be off this book in six months. If that's what you're thinking, then you go do a miniseries or a graphic novel or something. But when you're on an ongoing series, you're, you're in it for the long haul. So, um, so, and that was the fun of working on that book. And I also had the advantage of building on a wonderful foundation that was uh, created by Roger Stern and John Byrne. They weren't on the book very long, but they set up a great foundation. They, they created Bernie Rosenthal. They, they set him up as a freelance artist. I believe that came from them. Um, his, his place in Brooklyn, the, the beginnings of that supporting cast, that all started with them. So I had a great foundation and, and I built out from there and, and brought in my own, my own elements and my own point of view on Steve Rogers and who he was. Yeah, you bring up a, a good point about those supporting characters. And uh, you're right, uh, Roger Stern and, and John Byrd did a great job introducing those. Um, and you've, you've said a, a great story isn't about plot. It's about the characters. And, and the writer's job was to get out the drill and dig deep into the psyches finding, you know, the emotional core, the psychological truth. While you, you certainly did that with Steve, um, you also really fleshed out the supporting cast. Was that intentional to make Steve a more well-rounded character? You know, it's never a thought like, hmm, I want to make Steve a more well-rounded character, so I'll explore the supporting cast. It's just that as a writer, that's what you're going to do. Well, here's a character in front of me. The question is always, well, who is this person? You know, what is their role? What, what are they, what's their psychology? What's their emotional state? Now, I didn't get to do that with the whole supporting cast, but certainly like Bernie was a great character. And I spent a lot of time working with Steve and Bernie. And that was just a great relationship. I have no idea if that character even exists in the Marvel Universe anymore. But I thought that was that was like a Peter Mary Jane level relationship for me. I thought they really, really were well suited for each other. It was also a great way to, once she discovered who he is to upend all those old cliches about, you know, uh, Lois, I can't, you know, I can't be with you because I'm Superman and my enemies will hurt you. And she basically said, screw that. You know? um, mm -hmm. She was just a wonderful character. And, and the other, the other nice thing that I, that kind of happened accidentally, you know, Captain America represents America. He represent, I should say he represents the American ideal. He represents the best of us, not the reality, but the dream. And of course, the great thing about those stories is the gap between the dream and the reality. And that's where the stories lie. Um, but, you know, he had, he had, his best friend was Sam Wilson, who was a black man. His girlfriend was Jewish. Um, you know, I, I brought in Arnie Roth, his childhood best friend who was gay. And it wasn't like I was consciously doing that, I don't think, but I think I was just intuitively going, look, he is surrounded by the diversity of America. You know, even having Jack Monroe, the, uh, the, uh, the, the Bucky of the 50s, this sort of lost soul from another era, someone who's, you know, lives on the margins. You know, that's the kind of person that Cap would always take under under his wing. Uh, so I think the, the book and the supporting cast reflected something that was important thematically to what a Captain America comic book is supposed to be, if that makes sense. 
No, it completely does. And uh, talking about these these characters that you fleshed out, right? Um, and, and let's start with Burning. Um, and because you spent a lot of time writing Spider-Man. Uh, so it means a lot coming from you when you, you've said and said that the Steve Burning relationship was just as important as the Peter Mary Jane relationship. Why is that? It just felt real to me. It felt authentic. You know, she felt, uh, she, it, it's, the, the chemistry between writer and character is the same as the chemistry between people. You know, you meet somebody and you click or you meet somebody and you don't. And it's the same when you're writing a character. Sometimes it could be a character that you really enjoyed as a reader and you start to write them and something doesn't click and you realize you'd much rather be reading that character's adventures than writing them. And something about the character of Bernie just clicked for me. She felt like a real person. She didn't feel like some comic book contrivance. And, and she was just a great foil for him. And they really loved each other and respected each other. And they struggled as real couples do. And they always came out on the other end. And that's sort of what it was with Peter and Mary Jane. It was always the Peter Mary Jane relationship. That's why I loved the marriage. You know, all these people that didn't like the Peter Mary Jane marriage. I loved it because it felt so real. I could relate to it as, as a married person. Um, and I could relate to Stephen Burney, even though I am not a, uh, a super soldier. And the other characters as well, right? You mentioned Arnie. Um, right. You you introduced this character as Steve's childhood friend, which was important on on many different levels. I mean, because he was he was both Jewish and gay. And right. do, do you recall at the time was there was there any backlash uh, for from fans or any pushback from you any know, editorial or anything? Looking back, it's actually kind of amazing, but there wasn't. the The only thing that ever came up was. Um, in one of the issues, I think it was when the skull had captured Arnie. If you remember, it was sort of like a uh, a cabaret. They, they had him dressed yeah. up like he was in the movie Cabaret, like in some German uh, cabaret from the 1930s, where they and the skull is controlling him and making him say this horribly demeaning things about himself. And um, there was a little bit of dialogue that I believe that uh, the editor in chief wanted changed because he felt it was too. Uh, too evident that Arnie was gay or something like that. It's been a long time. And so they changed a little bit. But if you read that whole sequence, I mean, if you read the whole story, it's very, very clear that Arnie's gay. So it's like altering a little bit of dialogue here or there uh, makes no sense. But you have to also remember that it was a very different atmosphere in the 80s. Sure. In the early 80s, certainly, you know, and gay characters were not common. I don't know if, if Arnie was the first gay character in the Marvel Universe, but he was certainly one of the first. Um, and... Um, and so, again, I didn't like, my memory is it wasn't like, I'm going to make a statement and introduce a gay character. It just seemed like a natural thing for the book and for, for who Captain America is, that, that, that he would know, respect, and accept his Black breast friend, his Jewish girlfriend, his gay friend. You know, that's who Captain America is with these wide arms that embrace all that America is and stands for. Absolutely. And Arnie, Arnie turned into a great character. And for me, again, you know, when the book was coming out, it was like I was having fun doing it. Mike was having fun doing it. But I didn't, it, we weren't getting like, you know, mountains of praise or anything. So I didn't really know the impact those stories had. And years later, so many times I've been approached by by uh, by gay people who said this character meant so much to me to find this character in a comic book. And Arnie, you know, Arnie has come to mean uh, so much more than I realized he would ever mean to people. Because when you're writing a story, you're just following the story, you're following the characters. It's, you know, you, you don't sit down to write a grand statement about anything. You really don't. You're sitting down to write a story and you're, and you're, 
you're serving the story and the characters as best you can, but it's been incredibly, uh, I've been incredibly grateful for the response that I've seen about Arnie over the years, that his, his that characters had an impact and really, really meant something to people. And that's, you, that's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, the fact that not only had an impact in, in, on that uh, grand scale, in that important scale, that emotional scale, um, but he even on a lesser scale, um, had an impact, it seems like in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah. Uh, right. So that, you know, here's this character that was uh, Steve's childhood friend that kind of helped him out, uh, who was, you know, scrawny Steve. Right. He and, was the tough guy. He was yeah. the tough guy that got Steve out of scrapes and watched over him. And, and lo and behold, in the Captain America, the first Avenger movie, and someone had, I was so dumb, someone had to point it out to me. <laughs> I saw the movie and it didn't even click. And someone went, you know, that's Arnie. And I went, holy crap, they just lifted Arnie's backstory and put it on Bucky. That's exactly what they did. Yeah. And, and, and like I said, I'm so dumb, I didn't realize it at first. And then, I, then my eyes were open and I went, you're absolutely right. That's exactly what it is. So let, let's talk about Sam. So okay. the, you mentioned him. So the Falcon has been an important character in the Captain America series for decades. Yeah. And, and at times, uh, these best friends clashed. You know, there were a lot of things going on. Different writers brought different aspects. And one of the things that, um, yeah, and by the way, we hadn't seen Sam in a while. And, and here he is. Uh, on the first page of your kicking off your run on Captain America, along with Steve and Josh in a bar. And while we didn't, I mean, we, we did get to see the Falcon in uniform, you know, on occasion, he, he was mostly in the story as Sam during your run. And, and you had that's him running. That's true. I never thought about that, but that's true. Yeah. You had, you had him running for Congress uh, and in, in doing so, exploring his origin as Snap. And yeah. you've said in the past, you don't like to typically undo other writers' work, but this this seemed to be an exception. Yeah, you know, I had not read those stories when they were coming out, those Snap Wilson stories. And I believe they were started by one writer. It might have been started by Steve Englehart, and then other writers came along and finished it. And knowing uh, Steve Englehart and what a superb writer he is, that I have a feeling that story would have gone off in a very different direction than it ultimately did. But the story that was set, so here's here's the Falcon who is, you know, along with the Black Panther, what is, you know, the first black superheroes in the first in the Marvel Universe. And in fact, at that point, the Falcon had probably had a lot more play than uh, than even the Black Panther had at that point in time. He'd been he'd been used in more stories and things. And and what they did in that story was essentially say that who he who we believed he was is not who he was, that the Red Skull had taken some drug dealing street pimp, every every sort of like negative black man cliche of the time. And that's who Sam Wilson really was and that the Red Skull had layered another personality over that and created the Falcon. And I found that offensive. I just found it incredibly offensive. I can't imagine how a black reader would have felt reading that. So what I tried to do was not say, well, that story didn't happen, but here's how we can maybe explain this psychologically. So I did this backup story called Snapping where we got into, into, you know, kind of what you said before, peel back the top of their heads, root around in their psyches and see how could this have happened? So, um, and that's what that story was about. It was a way to, to, to explain that and say, no, that's not who he was. The good and decent Sam Wilson that we know is who he was when he was a teenager. He was traumatized by his father's death and other things. And for a time kind of hid himself behind this street persona, but that's not who he was. And that snapping story was about him struggling 
with both sides uh, uh, of himself and with the pain of his childhood. Um, and I, 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 I think it was a pretty good story for, for a little three-part backup. But it was, it was important to me because it was, you know, how often is a conflict story going to offend you? <laughs> that one really offended me. Um, yeah, I, and, and I, I agree that it was an excellent story because it, it took, I think, in some cases, a kind of a two-dimensional aspect of, of Sam and, and really kind of fleshed him out uh, and, and made it a little bit more 3D. So, um, so yeah, I, I agree that um, this was something that was kind of uh, gave a new outlook on, on the character of Sam Wilson. Um, and you also- Yeah, and by bringing the two parts of his personality together by facing his trauma in a way that he never had before, he was whole in a way that he never was before. And he was stronger than he ever was before. And he could move forward with his life in a new way. Right. It wasn't that he, like he chose to overcome. He worked through and and overcame his his backgrounds, uh, of, as you said, those two parts, as opposed to something two-dimensional like the Cosmic Cube doing something. So, right, right, yeah. right, yeah. And so, so these are characters that, of course, have been around for a while. And, and we, you know, you, I mentioned that you've done a great job kind of building these characters, but you also did an excellent job in bringing back little known or even like one-off characters. Um, so first, I'd like to talk about Jack Monroe, because uh, you, as you mentioned, you brought back Bucky from the 1950s, who, who was originally created by Steve Englehart in 1972. Yeah. So 10 years later, uh, you finally gave him a name and uh, really made him an interesting character, central to the supporting cast. Why do you feel he was a character worth bringing back? And, and did you mean for him to be a big part of your story or did that just evolve naturally? You know, a lot of this stuff just evolves naturally. And, and I can't, you know, I'd have to travel back in time and crawl into my own head to really understand why I did what I did with all these things. Because it's been, it's been a while, you know. But I was a huge fan of, of, of Steve Englehart's run. The, the Englehart Buscema stuff especially is just, that whole run is just, it's some of the best Captain America stories ever done. And, you know, I have so much respect for Steve Englehart. He's such a great writer. And, you know, Sal, Sal and I have worked together. And I think he's just one of the best and most unheralded and underappreciated artists in the history of comics. Uh, he's so good. So I loved that run. And I was always fascinated by that cap of the fifties storyline because, you know, as a reader at that time, I didn't know there'd ever been a cap in the fifties. So it was like, A, it was a revelation and B, it was just such a cool story. And, and, you know, that's just the way my brain works. You start to wonder, so where, what would happen to this guy? If he and he, it's sort of it, he was sort of a mini version of Captain America himself because he was uh, someone out of time, released into into another an, another era, and yet he was still you know a young man. He was you know maybe he was eighteen or something, uh, whatever whatever age he was, maybe even younger. I don't remember. Um, and I just got fascinated by that whole concept. So, uh, and then you know when I brought him back, if I remember the scene when he knocks on the door uh, of Steve's apartment. You know, Steve's first reaction is, oh, you know, here we go again. Someone's bringing back a Bucky robot or a Bucky clone or something. And he takes Jack and just flips him on the floor and smashes him uh, because he doesn't realize who it is. Um, and that's how the relationship begins. But I just, I found him a fascinating character. And, and I found writing their relationship. You know, he was a lost soul. He was, a, he was a lost soul even in the 50s. This poor, you know, if you think of, you know, the, the kid's sidekick thing, that's why, you know, he had to be at least 18 or 20 by the time you're writing him. Because I, 
you know, the idea of kid sidekicks really is just, when you really think about it, it's just insane, right? Let me get a 12-year-old kid, put him in a costume, we're going to run around and fight Nazis together. You know, what a great idea. Um, but, you know, in 1942 or whatever, it, it, was, it, was, a different, it was a different kind of thing. Uh, but, uh, but they really worked well as a team. And then again, being a, a fan of the Engelhart run and his Nomad storyline, I thought, here's an opportunity to bring back that Nomad identity and give it to Jack and develop a whole new character out of these two threads from the past. And, and I think it worked out, I think it worked out pretty well. I really enjoyed writing him. I enjoyed writing his relationship with Steve. I enjoyed writing just, you know, his own sort of, he had to learn about being in the eighties the same way that when, you know, Stan and Jack were writing it, Steve had to learn about being in the sixties. Um, and that was always, that's always a fun thing. Uh, I love the man out of time stories. Yeah, it was so, fun to revisit that 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 theme. Yeah, and and he yeah. became a, a a fairly beloved character. I mean, he went on to have his own series in the early nineties. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so that that was something thanks to you. So I, I guess my question is, uh, when Ed Brubaker became the series writer uh, back in two thousand five, he had this fantastic Winter Soldier story, mm-hmm. and um, part of that story. Uh, Winter Soldier assassinated Jack in a very controversial, like one issue story. Did you I didn't even know that? <laughs> oh. that? I never knew that. So Jack is dead, huh? Yes. That's how you tell me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, like, uh, you know, I'm up on some of this stuff, but I have not followed, you know, every bit of history since, since then. Okay. So, oh, that's stupid. Well, you know, it's comics. So, so dead Bucky assassinated Jack. So that does that means that Jack could come back at any time, really. Exactly. You know, Bucky can come back. Jack can come back. Yes. Well, maybe, uh, maybe we'll have uh, you know a uh, J.M. DeMatteis um, uh, revival of uh, Jack Monroe. Yeah, that would be fun. That would be fun. And you know, Jack was going to be very, very important. We can, we'll get into this, I'm sure, in in the latter part of my run, the part of my run that never happened. He was going to play a very, very important role in this massive story that I had mapped out that got canned. Yes. Another one-off character that you brought back in a big way was Helmut Zemo in, in 1982. Right. Uh, and he was last seen as the Phoenix in Cap 168 with his dramatic... and and. You know, had this dramatic revenge plot that that, uh, that you wrote, uh, which really made him a top tier cap villain. Um, you know, it, it, what was it about him that made him so interesting that you wanted to bring him back from his apparent death back in 1973? Right, because, you know, if I remember the, the Roy Thomas story where he first appeared as the Phoenix, it was just a, one, a one-off story. And I don't think he even found out he was Zemo's son until the end. And um, I'm... You know, you, you, themes appear in your stories and you don't often realize them while you're writing them and you look back and go, oh, I'm obsessed with the relationships between fathers and sons, aren't I, <laughs> you know? And so you've got the son of Zemo, you know, and it's, like, and it's always the question of like, it's sort of like Harry Osborne and Norman Osborne, you know, it's like, what was it like, you know, what did it do, what did it do to his psyche being Zemo's son? Obviously it twisted it, you know? Um, and, and I just thought it would be interesting to bring him back. And yeah, we, we, we managed to build him into, uh, from basically a, a throwaway villain in a one-shot story into, into a major villain who I guess is still a major villain in the Marvel Universe today. Um, and it was, it was really fun to work with him and, br- and bring in the skull. And the skull is essentially manipulating him by trying to be a father figure to him. And, um, and I, I found it interesting because he was, he was tortured by his relationship with his father, you know, and, and, um, you know, when you have that sort of rich psychological soup, 
there's always so much to play with. Uh, the push-pull of, of, of someone who's been raised by a Nazi supervillain. You know, what does that do to your psyche? What does that do to your psyche? So I found him very, very interesting. Yes, and and he, as I mentioned, he went on to be a, a certainly a top tier cap villain, uh, thanks to you. And uh, it was he he goes on to to have a tremendous, as you mentioned, you you don't keep up on everything, but of course the character goes on to 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 have uh, a tremendous amount of amazing stories uh, as a thorn and cap side, um, and, and another one off character, and, and they they keep on coming, right? Uh, was the character Primus, so. This was a, a creation of Jack Kirby, and, and last scene uh, was his introduction in, 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 I think it was issue 209, 210. You decided to bring him back and, and not only pose as Artem Zola, but later as Steve Rogers to, to ruin his life through his loved ones. Um, when, when you took this role as series writer for Captain America, you must have done a lot of research and homework. You know, especially in my earlier days in the business, you know, if you're a comic book fan, oh, well, they, I'm going to write Captain America. I better make sure I have 8,000 issues of Captain America here to read through. It's a great excuse to read comics, you know? Um, in the beginning, I used to do that with whatever the series was, I would go, you know, if I didn't have them, I'd go buy a ton of back issues and read through them all. Because, But the truth is, you find these nuggets. Now, the Kirby run, I had run, I, I read when it was coming out. I'm like one of the world's biggest Kirby fans. I love, I, I just I just revere Jack Kirby. If there's anyone in the history of comics who deserves to be called a genius, it's Jack Kirby. And so... Um, he, you know, Kirby has, you read a Kirby story and like every third, every third panel, there's another brilliant idea. And then he moves on to the next one, you know? So, you know, Arnim Sola and Primus and all that stuff. I love those stories. And um, the thing that I remember with the Primus story was just, I like playing with identity also. So to have him be Steve Rogers, you know, it, it's sort of like in a weird way, it, maybe it mirrors, you know, Craven trying to be Spider-Man in a weird way. Not, it, we didn't go as deep and as far with it, obviously. But, but it, it allows you to contrast who is Steve Rogers really versus who this guy who's pretending to be Steve Rogers uh, is trying to be. It was just a fun character and it and allowed me to open the door and, 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 and get in, use it also to get into the Steve and Bernie relationship even more. I don't remember the story 100%, but did Bernie, did Bernie, did Bernie tumble to the fact that it wasn't Steve right away or it wasn't, it wasn't until Steve showed up that she caught on? Uh, I think it was, it wasn't until he showed up mm -hmm. yeah. and then there was some yeah. confusion, of course. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that, that made for, yeah. made for an interesting story, no doubt. Yeah. Well, it was fun. It was really fun. And that's when uh, I think it was in that, was Vermin? No, Vermin came back later. Vermin was before that in that book. I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, and so we've been talking about characters that you supported characters you helped flesh out. We talked about, uh, characters that were one-offs. Uh, so next, yeah, I, I want to talk about some new characters, uh, that you created. And we'll be right back after this message. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, so in addition to bringing back lesser-known characters or fleshing out supporting characters, you also, for this Captain America series, you also created some really interesting characters as well. You you mentioned uh, Vermin. Uh, was was Vermin fun to create and write? Yeah, my, you know, 
again, I say my memory is it's so long ago, you know, I hope that my memory is accurate. But I think vermin was just, it was something as simple as like, man, rat, that's cool. <laughs> you know what I mean, there was nothing very deep behind it. It was only later when I really explored the character in uh, Craven's Last Hunt and then during my spectacular Spider-Man run that I really began to peel his psyche apart. And, uh, but there was clearly something I liked about the character because I used him in Cap, then I brought him into Marvel Team Up and I brought him into Craven's Last Hunt. So there's a thread from that first Captain America story, you know, with, with Mike to Craven's Last Hunt with Mike. In fact, one of the reasons why I probably even thought of him for Craven's Last Hunt was because I was doing it with Mike. Mm -hmm. And it brought my mind back to our previous collaboration because I needed a character uh, that could contrast Craven's vision of Spider-Man with Peter's vision of Spider-Man and, uh, and vermin in that raw man rat cannibalistic state, you know, to see the difference between the way that Craven treated him and the way Peter treated him said all you could ever want to say about who those characters really were. And, uh, and then of course, you know, then it's like, all right, so the same question, I call it the big why, well, you know, why does this character exist? Why does he do this? What, what, what is it in his life? What created him? And then, uh, you know, that led into a story in Spectacular Spider-Man called The Child Within, which is one of my favorite things I've ever done for Marvel. And I think maybe, you know, right up there with Craven uh, as the, the best Spider-Man story I've ever done. Um, so we're, we're really so much of it focused on Vermin and the traumas of his childhood that created him. No, I, it sounds interesting because obviously Craven's Last Hunt was amazing. I didn't, uh, I haven't read the, the Spectacular Spider-Man and we'll have to check that out. Yeah, those, oh, those two years on Spectacular Spider-Man, I think, are two, two, two years of the, some of the best work I've ever done in mainstream comics. Yeah. And Sal Buscema probably did, if not his best work, certainly some of the best work he's ever done in his career. And considering the work he's done, it's saying a lot. Vermin, as you mentioned, uh, you, you brought him into that Marvel team-up issue. Um, yeah. And so I was wanted to, was curious about that, right? So you, you had him in... Uh, Captain America series. Um, he, I guess the last time we saw him, he was uh, in the back of Zemo's right. ship as he was flying off. And then two months later, he there's this one issue of Marvel team up. And for those who, who aren't familiar with the story, you may be familiar with the cover because it's that classic uh, <laughs> cover of Spider-Man <laughs> and Captain America photo cover, right? With the uh, real people in costumes. Classic might not be the right word for that cover, but that's okay. <laughs> it, was, it was a good, you know, given the technologies of the time, it was a good attempt. Right. So in that one issue, um, you you have with Spider-Man and Captain America, and then of course he he goes off to to be in the Spider-Man stories. Was that intentional? Was it was it like I, I, look, I want to follow up on this character, but I don't want to. I don't have time or space to bring him into the Captain America series, or I want to introduce him to Peter, so because I have an idea down the line. Oh, there was no idea down the line at that point. No, okay. not at all. That was way before Craven's Last Hunt. Yeah. So that was just like, oh, well, Cap's in the story. Vermin was kind of a cool character. Let's just bring him back. Yeah. Um, and, you know, because Vermin was so raw, and I mean, he was a, he was a man rat. He was a cannibal. He ate people. You know, it's like, um, it, it really allows you to to play with your heroes and see how, how do they react to and treat this really loathsome um, creature. And then of course the challenge becomes later on as I dig into the character psyche, how do you create compassion for what appears to be a, a loathsome character? And then of course, mm -hmm. as he, his own personality began to resurface, uh, he had to deal with the things that he had done as vermin, even though they, on one level they were out of his control 
he still bore the guilt of all that, you know, for the rest of his life. He was a really fascinating character, Edward. Well, you know, you bring up uh, compassion, and it, I, I think this touched on a couple of the stories that you wrote for Captain America, and it's almost like compassion is Steve's one of Steve's greatest strengths and one of Steve's greatest weaknesses, and and you explored that uh, I, I think a few times, especially when he was um, you know looking at villains uh, from uh, an empathetic point of view. Yeah, I mean, you know. Just in life in general, and, and the older I get, the, the, the clearer and more important it is. I think compassion is, uh, and simple human decency and kindness, it's, it's, it's the thing that I, I aspire to more than anything is to live my life with compassion. I think that's what we, as human beings, all want out of the universe, really, is just treat us with some kindness. And you're right, you know, Steve's superpower is not what he got from the, from the super serum. Steve Rogers in a lot of ways was Captain America before that serum ever hit his veins because it's about who he is. You know, he is a truly, if they were making a uh, Captain America movie, like a big budget Captain America movie in the 1940s, they would have cast Jimmy Stewart. Do you know what I mean? They would have sure. beefed him yeah. up. In because he is like a truly good and decent man. And, and, you know, if the whole world will be going to hell and, and everyone else will be turning to their dark side, but Steve Rogers will always be a good and decent man. And that's what I liked about him. So yeah, his compassion is, it's sort of like Superman in a weird way, but I think Steve may be a little more relatable um, in that, you know, what makes Superman great is not his superpowers. What makes Superman great is the quality of his being, is his compassion, his decency, and all that he stands for there. I think that, you know, Clark Kent, Steve Rogers, would would get along famously you know they yeah. would get along really really well because they have very similar values uh very similar values although you know steve's values you know came out of that sort of uh fdr era uh you know new deal uh government uh reaching out to help the little guy era you know and i think that's a lot of what formed him yeah and, and you know i think there's no uh, coincidence, the fact that both have been referred to as uh, the big boy scout, I think, at, at right. times, right? Right, right. So getting back to characters you created in this series, uh, one of them is uh, a really interesting one is uh, Cynthia Schmidt, uh, the Red Skull's daughter. Right. And um, so talk a little bit about about her, about, you know, why why give Red Skull an, uh, uh, an heir, or certainly didn't turn out the way uh, he wanted, but um, why, why bring a child into this story? You know, again, looking back, it's, you know, this is my obsession with, with parent-child relationships. You know, these are the fundamental relationships of our lives. And I think they inform our psychology for the rest of our lives. We're either shaped by them in positive ways or we're shaped by them in pulling away from them because of the damage that was done, you know, or we get damaged and we can't pull away. But, you know, that's, it's, it's sort of the fundamental primal relationship. So, to explore someone like the Red Skull in relationship to a child just seemed, you know, fascinating to me. And, you know, he, he did with her what he did with everybody. He manipulated her. He toyed with her. She thought she was going to be his heir. And then he brings Zemo along and says, no, he's going to be my heir. If I'm remembering correctly, yeah. that, that's what happened. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, and I just thought she was a, a, just a really interesting character. I'm glad that she's also gone on to have a life in the Marvel universe and uh, may they use her in a movie 
and send me lots of money. <laughs> uh, yeah, I thought that the whole, you know, Sisters of Sin, I thought they were a cool little back, back, background group. And we have to give credit, you know, we talk about sex, but Paul Neary drew the second half of my run mm -hmm. and um, did an excellent job. I think it suffered a little bit because they kept switching inkers on him a lot. You know, it yeah. took a while for them to find a regular inker. Mm -hmm. um, but he did an excellent job. And that was a great, uh, you know, that was like a year long storyline with the Red Skull that we were working on together. Yeah, so let's let's uh, I guess talk about that. Um, so you you started your your run on Captain America with the Red Skull story, and you you ended with the Red Skull story. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So lucky in that regards. And um, so you know, I reread your entire Cap run recently, and I have mm -hmm. to say, the final Red Skull story was a masterpiece and building that you mentioned that year, right? Of building yeah. it to an ultimate end battle between these two mirror images. I mean, the plots, the subplots were all wonderfully crafted, you know, to this grand final tale. Um, however, not everyone has heard how you originally wanted to see the story end. Right. So I, I was building and I and I and this was something certainly at, a, at a, maybe not from the very beginning, but at a certain point in that in that arc a few months in, I knew where it was going to end. Uh, we were going to end with this final battle with the Red Skull. And my, my, you know, again, coming back to who Captain America is, this decent, compassionate man. So in the course of this story, everyone that Steve loves has been threatened, has, has come close to death. You know, at the end, they're all in Skull House together. Um, and, and my idea was, well, being who he is, he's got a question. It's now been, you know, it's the 80s, so it's been 40 years since World War II. He spent years and years and he has this, this horrible final battle with the Red Skull where he almost dies, the Skull does, dies, uh, does die, everyone he loves almost is, almost is swept away in this tide. And he would question himself was what I thought. He would say, you know, all these years of basically trying to solve problems by dropping the building on the bad guy's head and punching him in the face, where has it gotten me? You know, uh, in ruins, really, in ruins. It's almost destroyed everything I know and love. And there's got to be another way and a better way to live my life and make positive change in the world. And so the idea was that he was going to throw his shield into the East River, turn his back on violence and try to find that other way. And, and it wasn't gonna be easy because when you've been punching people in the face for all those years, you have those reflexes and you're gonna keep punching them even when you don't want to. But it would be his journey to find a peaceful way to affect change and the and to become a global peace activist. And in the course of which, it, it was also my opportunity to make commentary about that aspect of superhero comics. Because I love those characters. I love those universes. I couldn't have continued to work with those characters all these years in comics and in animation and in some live action as well um, without loving those characters. But there's a fundamental flaw in the whole thing, which is, Problems get solved by two people punching each other in the face. It's always going to end up in a big battle. You know, and I always try to write my way around it. And you want to you want to layer in as much psychology and philosophy, find that one ending to the story, like the 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 Black Crow story the first time where the story ends because not because Steve punches him in the face, but because Steve bows to him and surrenders, you know, and that ends the battle. So I wanted to make say, you know, talk about that underbelly, that part that says, you know. And, it, and it's not just superhero comics, it's a whole sort of macho, I say macho American, but it's in every culture. You know, the, 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 the military mindset, the warrior mindset, that things 
have to be solved that way. And probably if you talk to actual military people who've had experience of war, they're probably gonna be the first guys to say, you gotta try another way because this way is terrible, you know? And so Steve, who comes from that kind of tradition, uh, you know, no, nothing's more powerful than a warrior who puts down his weapon. And that was the journey I was gonna take Steve on, but in the course of which, the whole Marvel universe was essentially gonna turn against him. The other heroes weren't gonna understand, you know, what he did. And it's sort of like, well, we've all been doing this for all these years and you're saying what we're doing is wrong. You know, the public was gonna turn against him. And my plan originally that the, the, the allies he was gonna find in this journey were gonna be Dr. Doom and the, and, and the Submariner. They were the two guys who actually understood what he was trying to do and we're going to try to work with him to do it. It was going to be, a, it was going to be a big, another big story of at least a year. And it was going to climax with poor out of, out of time Jack Monroe can't wrap his head around this and finally decides that Cap is a traitor and assassinates him. That was going to be the end. And I was going to bring, uh, bring out a new Captain America after that. My first thought was I was going to use the Falcon because I thought that would be cool. Let's have a black Captain America. But then I went back to Black, uh, black Crow because I thought, Here's a Native American, the first American. So what, what could be cooler than to have a Native American Captain America? So that was the plan. Mm. Mark Ruinwald, my editor, who uh, just a wonderful human being, a great editor, a wonderful writer, uh, a font of ideas, uh, still sorely missed all these years later. He said, let's do it. That's great. Let's do it. So I started to work on it. And then Jim Shooter, who was the editor-in-chief at the time, got wind of it. And as was Jim's right. He was the editor-in-chief. He's the custodian of the Marvel Universe. He said, in his, through his point of view, Captain America would never do this, would never act this way. I thought that he would. Jim thought that he wouldn't. You know, Jim wanted to change the whole story. That's why Captain America 300 was supposed to be a double-sized issue, and I plotted it as a double-sized issue. And then, you know, the second half was the beginning of this journey, so they cut that in half. Uh, Jim rewrote a whole bunch of my dialogue in that issue, which is why you see the script credited to uh, to Michael Ellis, which is a name uh, from a Monty Python sketch that uh, Grunewald suggested to me because I didn't I didn't want my name on the script after they had changed it so much. So um, you know, I look back now, you know, the story still reads okay, and it's a nice it's a nice finale to the story. But there was so, and I look back and I think, God, if we had done this in nineteen whatever it was, nineteen eighty three or four. That would have been really, really, this is, you know, before Watchmen, before any of this stuff, that would have been quite a groundbreaking story. And, um, and I, I think it would have been a, a story of great value. But that's life in the freelance lane, you know what I mean? I'm just a freelancer. I get hired for the gig. And if the editor-in-chief thinks it ain't going to work, it ain't going to work. And at the time, I was very upset about it, and I quit the book. But, you know, time goes by, and you take a deep breath, and you realize, you know, Shooter's just doing his job. And if, if that's what he feels, that this story is not going to work, then you have to respect that. And the flip side of that is also, just from a point of view of being the editor-in-chief of a line of superhero comics, if you have your foundational character, this character that's been around since whatever, 1940, stand up and say, hey, you know what all you guys are doing every day, fighting bad guys and punching them in the face, isn't the way to go. You're sort of putting some dynamite into the foundation of your entire universe of characters. So I could understand where they would bridle at that as well. So, um, yeah, so I sat on that story and, and, and revamped it with my own character for like till 2008. I would, I would I, I, I'd work on it, I'd pitch it, no one would get it. I'd put it away for a few years, I'd work on it, I'd pitch it, no one, and finally, 
after like whatever it was, 25 years, uh, I basically evolved it into a story called The Life and Times of Savior 28. I pitched it to IDW one morning, and it's the only time this has ever happened to me, and it was approved that afternoon. Wow. So after, after 25 years, I got an instant approval. You know? <laughs> it only took 25 nice. years to get an instant approval. But I, <laughs> you know, in, and in the long run, I'm glad that it happened that way because that story, The Life and Times of Savior 28, is one of, I think, the best stories I've ever done. By removing it from the Marvel Universe, I was able to tell my story in exactly the way that I wanted to tell it. I created my whole, you know, my Cavalero, the artist, and I created our own universe of characters and got to tell that story in exactly the way we wanted to tell it. At the same time, I always imagine that there's a parallel universe out there somewhere where I got to do that story, you know, and I would love to see what that story would have looked like as a Captain America story. Definitely have to check that out. Um, because yeah, it, that's a, that's a fascinating uh, twist on what end up happening, right? With 300 and, and then when Mark Grunewald took over as the writer, um, but it sounds uh, it sounds like it would have been a, a killer story, um, and I'm and you know and, and I did the I was planning to assassinate Captain America. What was it fifteen years later they assassinated Captain America? You know yeah. I had the idea to do the Falcon as Captain America. Twenty years later they did that too, which is it's interesting, you know. Uh, JM, I don't know if you know this about Bob, but he was uh, in the Marines for twenty five years. Uh, so oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean that completely resonated with me, JM, and. Uh, it really, it really struck home with me. I don't know if you saw my facial expressions when you were talking, but uh, that that's what I've always really loved about Cap because he, he knows that violence isn't always the way and that there often is a better way. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, kind of what I said before, the guy who's who's had firsthand experience of what war is, is probably the best guy to address the issues of peace. Yeah. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Because Because he knows what the consequences are. He understands what the consequences are. You know, I can sit here, but I have never been in that situation. And as horrified as I may be thinking about it, the realities of being in the middle of it has got to be something very, very different. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's why, you know, to the decisions that get made on a governmental level about these things, um, you see certain politicians who are just so cavalier about this stuff, you know, about the use of force and all these things as if, as if it's a game, you know, but if you've been in it, you know, but it ain't no game and it's a, it's very, very real. And I think that's what it was for Cap. This is a guy who'd been through it on this, in so many ways, starting with World War II. He knew what the ugliness and the brutality was about. And he knew that, 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 that there are finite returns on that. Yeah. Thank you for saying what you said. I'm glad that it did resonate with you. So we, uh, we recently spoke with uh, Catherine Schuler Grunwald, Mark's wife. Oh. And um, she, she talked mostly about his time as the Captain America writer for 10 years. But maybe you could touch a little bit more on your time with Mark as his, uh, him being your editor while on Captain America. Sure. You know, Mark was a contemporary. He wasn't just my editor. He was my friend as well. He was just a great guy. I loved working with him. And what was great about Mark was that he, you know, he would come, he knew like he knew that I liked to play around with the villains and get in their heads. And so he'd say like, well, how about this villain? Here's the scarecrow. Here's a viper. He would like make these suggestions about, you know, things for me to play with, directions for me to go with stories. And then once he did, he, he set me free to do, he, he wasn't trying to control the stories. He wasn't trying to control me. He was just full of enthusiasm and ideas. And it was just great to work with him. And in fact, the death clock story would not have existed without Mark. Mark was like, 
oh my God, talk about Mr. Continuity and Mr. Knows Every Story and where every thread leads. He knew it all, <laughs> you know? So he came to me with the idea for the Deathlock story. And he, he had mapped out the whole thing, every Deathlock story going into the future, where it was headed. And all these threads were, you know, the stories were originally done, I guess, in the early 70s, but they were taking place like in 1983 or whatever year we were writing it. So he mapped this stuff out and he said, what do you think? Could you do a cool story with this? You know, we could do this, you could do that. And I, I looked at all this material and it just gave me a headache. You know? And I remember trying to come up with a story and calling Mark and saying, you know, Mark, you know, thank you for giving me all this great material because I couldn't have had a story without him. And, but I don't think I can make sense of this. And then what happened to me, I always have to find the psychological and the emotional hook. And there was Deathlock, but there was a Deathlock clone out there as well. So one of my other big themes is the search for identity, you know, the search for self, who we think we are versus who we really are, you know? And so uh, Deathlock's search for his clone sort of became uh, symbolic of our search for ourselves, for our authentic selves. And that gave me the hook into the story. And, that, and, uh, and so Mark had contributed so much with so much material and suggestions that I actually wrote him in as co-plotter on every single issue. And this speaks to the qualities of the man he took it out of the credits every single issue, you know, wow. and that's who Mark was. Yeah, uh, he he's certainly um, a, a beloved creator in the Captain America lore, as you can imagine, yeah. after his so much time on the character and, and it was his favorite character. Yeah. Um, and, and talking about getting into, uh, you know, into the to heads and, and, and trying to establish that, um, you know, one of the things that you move Steve away from in, in the series was that whole old mantra of, Oh, woe is me. Bucky is dead. The pining that had haunted him for so long. And you had Arnie point that out at his partner's grave, telling Steve, you know, he needed to drop the self-pity act and, and realize how good he has it. And in the next issue, Steve's comments on how he needs to move beyond the self-pity and, and look at the positives in life, namely Bernie and his friends um, was was that a conscious decision to change the narrative that seems to have been kind of replayed in the Captain America comic books for decades, that whole, you know, woe is me and, and change it more into a, a, you know, a positive attitude. Yeah. And, and again, you know, these things don't come out of an agenda. Like I'm not thinking, Oh, I want to change the narrative. It comes out of the character. The, the, the more I get to know the character and the characters and play them off against each other. You know, I've, I say this many times, um, I tell my writing students this, I, I do a, a writing workshop, uh, Imagination 101, which I will plug before we're done today. And, uh, mm -hmm. and, you know, the characters really do. It's the oldest cliche in the book, but if you're doing it right, the characters take on a life of their own. And you as the writer, your job is to get out of the way and let them start talking to each other. You can't control them. You let them take hold of the story and you let them go. And, and that's what happens with something like that. When you have a conversation between Arnie and Steve at a graveside, it's not something that I'm like mapping out because I have an objective necessarily. I get the characters talking and they reveal themselves through the dialogue. So it was, it was probably more Arnie's idea than mine, if you know what I mean, to mm -hmm. say that to Steve. But also you're right, you know, the Bucky thing, you know, was, was a tired trope by that point. And certainly, you know, when it first came up in the 60s when they brought, you know, uh, Steve Beck, it was, it was, you know, a cool way in for Stan and Jack. Oh, Bucky's dead and I'm guilty and oh, woe is me, you know? Um, but, you know, 20 years have passed by that point, 20 years of, of comics and, and woe was me. 
And um, so, yeah, I think it was important for the character to move beyond that. And probably in some way, you know, ha having Jack around helped heal that as well. You know, right. having, having, having sort of a, a, Bucky, uh, a Bucky echo around with him. Yeah, because, you know, he, I, I agree with that because he, um, Steve, you know, has, from, from my experience of reading comics, and I think, and again, I started with, with yours and then worked my way back, but, um, you know, Steve has always been more of that, uh, that positive attitude, that glass half full, that, uh, uh, that there's always a, a, a positive way to do something. In fact, one of the, the characters of Steve Rogers that uh, would be an antithesis would be Wolverine. Um, mm -hmm. as far as different types of uh, personalities. And years later, um, there was a House of M story uh, where the Scarlet Witch goes crazy and the Avengers and the X-Men are, are gathered to discuss how to handle her. And Emma Frost suggested they, they put her down and, and Wolverine agrees. And Cap says, there's always a way. Mm -hmm. And Wolverine says, not always. And Cap stands over Wolverine and says, always. Mm -hmm. And I remember reading that and thinking, I heard that before. So then when I was reading Captain America 268, which was the um, Defenders crossover issue that you did, and he was mm -hmm. forced with a decision to fight and innocence die or to surrender. And you wrote, a hero was a man of moral fiber, a man who would not see one innocent soul sacrificed if there was any alternative. And to Captain America, there is always an alternative. Do you, do you think this is what separates Cap from the rest of the heroes and makes him that moral compass of the, of the Marvel Universe? Absolutely. I mean, that, that you know, it's, it's always interesting when I hear words that I wrote years ago echo back at me because I don't remember writing them. And I'm thinking, that's pretty good. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know cause the truth is, I, I'll get back to your point. You know, I look back sometimes, you know, when I look back at old stories, a lot of the times all I see are the flaws. Because, you know, hopefully as a creative person, you continue to grow through the years. You become a better writer, a better artist, a better musician, whatever it may be. Um, and then and so to go back and, 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 and see some writing in these old stories, I, I go, hey, you know, that, that kid was pretty good. He knew what he was doing. He knew more than I realized uh, that I knew at the time. But yes, that is exactly who Captain America is. He, he you know, even, and even, with an idealist like that, even if he's wrong, it's important to have the guy that stands there and says, no, there's got to be another way, you know, who really, really stands for the ideals and may even seem foolish for standing for them sometimes, you know, but, you know, in, a, in some ways it's it better to fight and die for the ideal uh, of a better world than just accept the fact that the world is, is a hellscape, right? Right. Even if you're wrong, if, 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 if I go to my grave delusional, believing that human beings are good and decent people and that the world is a good and decent place, despite what CNN tries to tell us every day, and it turns out I'm wrong and delusional, I would have rather have been wrong and believed in the best in people. And that's who Steve is. Right. Yeah, and that's what and I don't think he's wrong. About. You know, I don't think he's wrong. I think he's absolutely right. And it's funny, in talking about this with you, I guess maybe that's why I identified with the character. Because... Uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, forgetting the flag on his chest. I mean, that that's kind of how I feel about life. You know, so so and it's the, in a different way. It's the same thing with Peter Parker. Uh, Peter Parker is is more human and probably more relatable because he's more flawed than Steve is. Steve is a little more perfect than that. Not that he had doesn't have flaws, you know, but, you know, Peter is uh, has more of a tendency to screw up. But Peter also is just a good and decent guy 
who, when he will screw up, will feel tremendous guilt about it and will always get back on his feet and try to right that wrong. And I like those characters that when you get to their core, you're good and decent people, you know? Well, we're, we're, we're coming to an end here. So I I wanted to uh, touch base real quick on the uh, Captain America fans everywhere rejoice. And I'm sure you did as well when the Captain America epic collection, Monsters and Men, uh, came oh, I'm out. so happy when that finally came out. Yes, yeah, yeah. it collects uh, 267 through 285, the annual six that you did, and then that Defenders crossover. Um, so uh, I, I, I'm curious, I mean, because it's obviously missing um, the end, right? It's missing the Deathlock issues and that, that, that Red Skull story. Um, right, and we, hopefully there'll be another epic uh, collection that will collect those, yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah, we're we're hoping for that as well. Um, I'm just curious uh, on the cover that they chose for this epic Monsters and Men collection, right? It's the cover mm-hmm. to 280, which is, it's got a defeated cap on the cover. Um, what were your thoughts on them, their choice of that cover for this this collection? Because I could have thought of a few other uh, right. Zek well, covers personally. You know, it's, 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 you know, I didn't think about it until you pointed out, but it's true. There are some, I mean, Zek's covers, holy moly, he did some astonishingly brilliant covers for that one. Uh, even on some of the issues like you know, that he didn't do some of those like the Sal filling issues, there's that great one of Cap on the Roof. Yes. It's like sunset. I mean, there's just so many great covers that he did. Uh the one, I think it's the one with the shields in the air. Like it's a down shot. And you're looking down on his 275, shield. yeah. Just it. you know, amazing. So yeah, they could they could have picked now that you mentioned it, you're absolutely right. But but you know, I'm so happy these stories have been collected that it's like I'm not gonna complain about a cover. Um, you know, I, right. I can't. I'm just delighted that it's out there because you know, some of these stories have been collected here and there. And you know, the there was a death of the Red Skull trade paperback some years ago that's out of print that had a bunch of those final Red Skull stories. But I would, it would be great to see them all in order the, yes. in, in these epic collections. So I hope that they do continue um, with, the, with the next one, starting with the Deathlock story and going through to the end. That'd be great. Well, I know you've been writing a lot of animation the last yeah. decade, including yeah. several DC to direct video movies. Uh, yeah. What else do you have going on right now? Right. Well, the most recent of the movies and things that, that came out, say, in the past six or eight months or whatever it is, um, uh, Deathstroke, Knights and Dragons movie, the... Um, adaptation of uh, Superman Red Sun. They're both on HBO Max. If you have HBO Max, you can check them out there. I also did two shorts that turned out really well. I did a death short, the first time that Neil Gaiman's death character has ever been used in any other media. And that's also on HBO Max as part of the Death in the Family collection and uh, an Adam Strange short. So yeah, I've been doing animation for, I don't know, 16 years now. It's turned out to be a very uh, significant uh, part of my my career. So bouncing back and forth between comics and and animation and some prose along the way and it's been it's been great and um and in terms of what i'm working on right this moment uh, i'm 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 working on a project for dc that i can't talk about i'm working on a project for another indie publisher that i can't talk about <laughs> and i <laughs> okay. have literally literally four four new creator-owned series that i'm developing right now that i also can't talk about and i have a meeting this week about an animated an animated project that i can't talk about so there's a lot of stuff happening so that's why I'll, I'll have to go backwards and plug the movies and the other things. So, you know, I, I think I, I'm enjoying the fact that I, I realize that almost like 80, 90 percent of what I've done in animation is now on HBO Max because I just added Justice League Unlimited and Batman, the Brave and the Bold. So a lot of my stuff is out there on HBO Max right now. All, all the other movies, Batman versus Robin and Batman Bad Blood and the Constantine movie that I did. So uh, I, it's really fun working with these characters 
in another medium. And a lot of times it, it's, it's about adapting stories, you know, taking a story that started in comics and then developing it and adapting it uh, uh, in, into a film. And that's, that's been really fun and really challenging. And I, I've really enjoyed it. And I get to work with, you know, great people like Alan Burnett and James Tucker and Stan Berkowitz and, you know, work with Dwayne McDuffie and, and Jim Krieg and, and Bruce Tim, all these great people. Uh, so it's uh, uh, the animation stream has just been a, a great, a great thing for me. I've loved it. Well, we're, we're certainly glad to hear uh, that you're continuing to be so busy with your, with your writing. Um, oh, so my, the big thing I wanted, I do want to plug, I know I almost forgot is uh, I've been doing on and off for a few years, a, a writing workshop called imagination 101. And people have been asking me for years, were well, you ever going to bring it online? Are you ever going to bring it online? And finally, because of COVID, because I had no choice. Um, uh, a friend of mine started a new website called Comics Plex, where there's going to be workshop. There's going to be just kind of a place for for people, comic fans to come together, sort of like an ongoing convention almost. And so I did my first online workshop for Comics Plex in November, and it went really, really, really well. So I have another one coming up in April. We do it. It's ten hours. We do it over two weekends, you know, Saturday and Sunday for two weekends, and it really explores writing for comics and animation and really not just, you know, we, it's through the filter of comics and animation, but it's really about storytelling and, 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 and writing. And, and we get into the nuts and bolts of it. And, you know, from script formats to working with editors to more of the metaphysical aspects of it, kind of what we were talking about, about characters coming alive and how do you evolve character and where do these stories come from? It's really, really fun. And I find that inevitably uh, the people are so interesting. Their questions are so interesting in the course of the weekends that I end up learning uh, just as much as they do, because, you know, we, we do this, most of us do this intuitively, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sitting writing a story thinking about how I'm doing it, I'm just doing it. So having to put together a workshop, having to answer people's questions gets me to think about my craft and my art in really, really different ways. And, and so it's helped me as I'm helping them. So the next Imagination 101 is in April. So if you go to comicsplex.com, or if you go to my website, jamdmateus.com, to the workshop section, there's information there about the workshops and how you can register. And, um, you know, and if this continues to go well, I'll, you know, every, every, you know, four or five months, I'll just do another one online. Because uh, it allows people not just from across the country, from, from around the world to come and sign up and, and be a part of this. And it's, uh, and it's fun for me, too, because when I began in the business, I had editors. You know, I started DC, guys like Paul Levitz and Len Wein and Jack Harris who shared their wisdom with me and helped me learn my craft. And it's a pleasure for me to be able to do that for people as well. And, and the other thing that I do along the same lines is I have a story consultation service called Creation Point where I work one-on-one -on -one with people. So they'll say, I wanna write a four issue miniseries. Will you help me develop it? Will you edit my scripts? Will you help me shape my story? So I, I do that as well. And that's also on my website if you go to the story consult section. And that's really fun. It's a whole different thing working with people one-on-one -on -one and helping them to, to do their story in the best way possible. Really, really fun for me. Yeah, and we encourage anyone who has uh, any interest in either writing or um, uh, improving their writing to, to check this out. Uh, because obviously, uh, after you know, talking with JM today, you, you hopefully you know uh, what a, a master he is when it comes to, to his craft. And so we'll have uh, his website also listed in our show notes so that uh, it's an easy link for you to find. Um, and also, uh, JM, if uh, fans want to just get in touch with you, uh, maybe on social media, uh, what's, what's the best way? Yeah, I'm on Twitter. It's just at JMD Mateus. Same thing on Facebook. Um, um, as we talked about, 
off mic, uh, I, I really enjoy the connection with the fans on social media. Social media for me has not been a negative experience. It's been overall a very, very positive one and a great way to connect with people. So yeah, if someone has something to say or something they want to talk about, uh, uh, please, please come on. And, and then obviously my website too. You know, anyone leaves a comment there, I'm going to answer it. So uh, I, I love the interaction because we spend most of our time alone in a room with our imaginary friends. <laughs> and it's nice to remember, especially now when we can't go out to conventions, it's nice to remember that there are real people out there that read and appreciate these stories. So, and I don't take that for granted, you know? Well, then I highly encourage you, JM, um, to, to, to check out the Captain America comic book fans Facebook group, because we've got Mike Zek, John Beatty, Bob Sharon, Joe Rubenstein. We have all those. It'd be nice to get the old band back together. <laughs> I will check it out. I will check it out. <laughs> all right. Well, it's, it, it's been a, a real pleasure and we want to, we thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, it was my pleasure too. You know, it's, uh, I, I don't get to talk about Captain America that much, it, it, so it's it's really sort of fun to revisit these stories and 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 explore them. And the same thing, kind of what I said with the workshop. By you asking these questions, I have to think about these stories in ways that I don't normally think about. So I have to, well, what was I thinking? So this was illuminating for me too to to revisit them and think about and put myself in the mind space of who I was then creating these stories. So thank you. Well, Bob, that was a lot of fun talking with J.M. DiMatteis. Uh, as, as I probably mentioned more than once, uh, my introduction to Captain America, he was the writer. And um, so that was uh, a lot of fun. Hopefully I didn't embarrass myself too much. No, not at all. Not at all, uh, Rick. And I, I got to tell you, I had a number of questions for J.M., but I, I, was, I was so mesmerized by, uh, by the conversation. And by, I mean, what he was sharing, the thoughts and his perspectives that uh, I'm, and I was like beside myself, just like dumbfounded listening to this stuff. So uh, I lost track of time. I'm sure the, I'm sure the listeners will, too. But that, that was amazing. Yes, it was. And I, I'm sure I'll probably re-listen to it uh, a few times uh, myself because uh, there's there's a, a bunch of nuggets in there, especially if you're um, a, a somebody who's aspiring to be a writer. Uh, uh, just, just hearing from the master himself. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was like scratching out notes to myself, just uh, little, little pearls of wisdom that he dropped along the way. Like uh, Steve Rogers was Captain America before the Super Soldier Serum ever hit his veins. That, that right there uh, is, is, is a gem. Yeah, yeah, and and who, who, who among us cap fans disagree with that, right? Right. Yeah. And the other thing too, you know, uh, he talked a little bit about. Uh, wanting to to do justice to the Sam Wilson character, right? Um, and that that backup story, that three-part backup story that he did um, uh, called Snapping. Um, so, you know, I, I think for our next episode, we should probably, uh, you know, dive into Sam Wilson and the origin of Sam Wilson. Um, I know, you know, he was introduced in Captain America 117. So, Let's start there and review that and then, uh, you know, get uh, into more detail, I think, about Sam Wilson's background. Yeah, that sounds like uh, that sounds like a great plan. I think that uh, it's long overdue. We're going to be heading into what, uh, episode 14 or something. And uh, I think it's, it's about time we give uh, we give we give uh, Sam his due. Absolutely. All right, Bob. Well, as always, it's been fun wrapping cap with you. Yes, yes, and I can't wait for the next adventure. All right. I'm Rick Verbanis. He's Bob Lucius. And as always, you've been listening to Captain America Comic Book Fans Podcast. 